Good morning. Morning. And uh, one announcement that I really want to make today is we want to welcome a new member to our class, Jacqueline Jade Slocum, who entered the world on December 2 at 3.27 a.m., weighing 8 pounds, 6 ounces, and 21 inches long, is daughter of Tamara and Bobby Slocum, who is the granddaughter of Dean and Zoe. And so we're really thankful that, that all that went well, and their home, mother and child are home, and everybody's doing well, and everybody's healthy. So let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the blessings you've given us, the blessings of life, of love, of truth of discernment and understanding how your kingdom works. We pray that your spirit will join us today. May we uh, understand more fully, assimilate more truth, grow each day in, in your kingdom's grace, and may you give us the ability to share this message. pray in your holy name. Amen. And uh, before we get into the lesson, I just wanted to read you an email I received this week, a short email. It says, Dear Come and Reason Team, so that's to you guys. I have been blessed beyond measure by the message you have been sharing. I live in the United Kingdom and am the leader in my church. Uh, through the grace of the Holy Spirit, I am planning a revival program for my church in January. I believe God led me to you via a friend who went to the general conference session earlier this year. Some of us who went there, I see, see his planet. Uh, I have been fasting and praying and asking God to direct me as he wants me uh, to do for the revival. As, pe- as a people, we have lost in church. We have been lost in church for so long that we cannot see how lost we are, and God has made it clear to me personally For a while now, it is because I had a distorted view of who he is. When I came upon your message a few weeks ago, everything God has been showing me came together in my mind. So, uh, I want to so share these truths with my church family to see others wake up uh, to the love of God. Would it be okay for us to use your materials and concepts from your program in the revival program? Uh, I thank Thank you for allowing God to use you in this magnificent way. And, of course, I've already emailed her, and she's free to use our resources that she likes in her program. But isn't that nice? All righty, so we are doing lesson number 12 in the uh, quarterly Jeremiah. And the title this week is Back to Egypt. Back to Egypt. When you hear the title, to what do you understand the title is referring? Back to Egypt. Slaves. Oh, that's good. I like where you're going with that. That's, that's not what the people are thinking, but yeah, you're already down the road. Um, you have to understand the context here in Israel. They're, getting, they're, they're in apostasy, basically. The prophets are coming, giving them warnings that Babylon is coming. The Babylonians are coming. And the people are thinking, we want to be protected. I know, let's get protection in Egypt. Let's get the, uh, the Pharaoh, let's, go, let's move back to Egypt and we'll be protected from Babylon. If we consider this process through the lens that we've talked about before, that ancient Israel is on stage, they're carrying out a play in a drama, they have, remember, cool costumes and theater and all this kind of stage and props and so forth, they're carrying out a drama. Um, what, what do we learn from this, from these historical facts that they went through? Well, the Hebrew people started out, if you remember, after the time of Joseph, as slaves in Egypt which is symbolic of human beings as slaves to sin and earth. Pharaoh represents Satan, who governs the world of false gods, coercion, oppression, and the powers that enslave. Moses represented Jesus, the deliverer, who delivers humanity from the powers of Satan and sin. Now, years later, the people have rebelled against God, and they are under threat, turmoil, and where do they turn? 
back to their previous slave master. What would this represent for us today? How does this, do we see this happening today? And if so, how do we translate that into our reality? You thinking? Processing? People have problems and sin in their lives? Seek God and get deliverance? But after freedom from some burden of sin in their life, often people, through busyness of life, through distraction, through various things, slowly disconnect or fall away or walk away in time. And the problems begin piling up in life again. They get overwhelmed, they get stressed, they get burdened, they get guilt. And all too often people turn back to their previous habits and become enslaved, their previous addictions, their alcohol, their drugs, their tobacco, their overeating, their shopping, their porn, their overwork, their romance novels, their TV programs, um, turning back to the things that they had been enslaved to before. What did Israel get from Egypt? Or what did they want to get from Egypt? They wanted to get security, right? They wanted to feel, feel safe. What do people get when they go back to their previous destructive habits? An alteration in their feelings. That's what they get. But if they went back to Egypt, would they have gotten freedom? No. And when we go back to our addictions, we don't get freedom either, even though we might get some emotional comfort transiently with whatever the addiction is providing. First paragraph says, This week's lesson brings us toward the end of the saga of Jeremiah the prophet. However, this is not an, and they lived happily ever after, ending. In a sense, one could summarize this week's study and even a good portion of the book of Jeremiah by saying that what we see here is an example of the limits of grace. That is, grace will not save those who are utterly, utterly refuse to accept it. No matter how much the Lord spoke to them, offering them salvation, protection, redemption, peace, and prosperity, all but a tiny and faithful remnant scorned and rebuffed God's offer. I think we all agree, the way we understand God works, that he never forces people, never coerces people. I think that's true. What do you understand, though, when you hear the word grace, grace to be? We can start with the, the traditional definition of the word grace, unmerited favor. Do you like that definition? What, 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 is, what is the problem with that definition? What, what might it accidentally cause people to, to think and feel? It minimizes our, our worth to God. It can minimize our value and worth to God. Yeah, it can make it sound like we are nothing but a piece of dirt on his shoes. And that's not really what's intended. What do you think about this idea as a definition for grace? And these are just some things I want to throw out, but unearned remedy or a free remedy or a remedy one did not develop themselves. My personal best that I currently like definition of God's grace is God's work to heal and restore and sustain his universe. That's what grace is. God's work to heal and restore and sustain his universe. Yes, Russell. Yeah, I, I kind of bristle when I hear language that says the limits of grace. I mean, if, if God is limitless and infinite, and his love is limitless and infinite, then his grace must be limitless and infinite. It's, the problem is not God putting a limit on grace. The problem is humanity refusing to accept it and, and be healed by it. Next question. Does God become less gracious when we refuse him? No. Does the remedy to sin become less effective because we refuse it. No. No. 
The remedy is just as effective. It becomes less effective in us. I didn't say in us. I said the remedy itself. Is it less potent? Does it have less healing power? Does it have less transformational energy? The remedy is the remedy. It doesn't change because we refuse it. We don't get the blessing of the remedy when we refuse it. But the remedy itself is, is, is just as powerful. Think about it. If you have an infection and penicillin works to cure your infection, does penicillin become less effective if you refuse it? Well, penicillin doesn't work anymore because I've refused it. No, it just won't work in you because you're not partaking it. So I, I, I think where Russell's going is, when you see this idea of limits of grace, where are you putting the limit? Are you putting in a limitation of God and his ability to heal and transform in some way that grace is limited? God's, and this is classic, classic, that people will often think, well, God is gracious up until a point, and then he puts off his robes of grace and puts on his robes of a judge, and he comes to punish sin. We've come to the end of grace. And I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So I understand that when people say the remedy becomes less effective because it's not effective in us if we're not partaking it. That makes sense. Yes. I've come to think of God's grace as more of his attitude towards us as being a constant attitude of desire for our well-being and that constant love. When I think of his grace, I think of it being limitless we can't exhaust it. It's his constant attitude of wanting our best interest in mind. No question. I love that. Do you know the Greek for the word grace, I believe, is kairos, which is the root word from where we get chiropractor. And it means to, it means to work, basically. It means, so it's the word where we get hand, work, manipulate, this kind of thing. And it really has this energy of God's graciousness tied with his graciousness in working action to bring about a result. And that's why I said God's work to heal and to save and sustain. It's God's life-giving energy. Everything that's flowing from him is always an act of grace. Everything. When you get a conviction from the Spirit, that's an act of grace. When God, when God intervenes with sunshine and rain, that's an act of grace. God's sustaining power is an act of grace. His demonstration in Christ is an act of grace. It's God's work. Which is always, if we understand his characters we're describing... God's always gracious. He never leaves the role of being gracious. How is, maybe we should pause here for a second. How is death that God permits the wicked to experience an act of grace? How many of you... Second and final death or the sleep? Both. Both. You can talk both, but let's let's talk the, the final death at first. If you had a dog and your dog got rabies and was mad and out of its mind and frothing at the mouth and violent and tearing everything up and trying to kill you, what would you do for that dog? We would put it out of its misery. But I think we have to be careful with that analogy. No. Why do we have to be careful about that analogy? Well, this would probably happen. But... You're talking about the, the, the causal action of putting the dog out of the misery. Yes, we would take a gun and shoot it. Perhaps, yes. How about if you had a dog that had terrible cancer and was in just absolute pain and suffering and there was no cure for it? What would you want to have happen for your dog? Do you think God wants less than us? The point I'm making here is the eternal death is an act of grace. Amen. It's an act of God to refu- where he actually restrains his life-sustaining power and refuses to hold people alive in a position of torment and torture. 
He grants them their choice, and if you read in Great Controversy, the words are these, the, the death of the wicked is voluntary with themselves. They surrender. They do not want to live in a universe in which God's love flows free. It's torment to their souls. They hate it. So we would stop the life-sustaining measures to sustain misery yeah. and let the dog go. Yes. And that's why I'm comfortable with it being an action on God's part to put to sleep those who are, in a sense, already they're, they're spiritually dead. You know, we talk about being born again, and they never were born again, so they are unremedied. So, in a sense, he is not, he's not destroying their identity. He's not destroying their chances for redemption. That was all, all given to them. It's... it's it is an act of, of grace. As, as and so the first death particularly, wh- wh- why? Oh, you had a question coming back here? I was just going to say, the, the analogy with rabies is that dog will eventually die as a result of his disease. That's right. You know, so it is an act of grace to, to stop that suffering. You know, and society is starting to accept that now. California just passed assisted suicide um, where people are uh, dying of cancer, other dreaded diseases and so do you think God cares less for us than we care for our dogs? Would you torture your dog before you put it out of its misery? Well, if you look at the first death experience, I think the first death is also an act of grace. God removed the tree of life from the planet of Earth so that wickedness and sin would be truncated. Just imagine the Adolf Hitlers and the Neros if, if, the, if the tree of life was still on this planet, do you think it would be controlled by the good people? The people who won't coerce and the people who won't kill others to get their way? Or do you think it would be controlled by those who will kill others to get their way? Who would control that power? It would absolutely be the ones that are all self-centered and willing to kill to get their way. There's no doubt in my mind about that. And so wickedness is limited on earth by the first death experience. No matter how wicked a person is, it is limited. Pain and suffering they can inflict on others is limited. It's an act of grace. Also, our own suffering. If any of you have had a loved one with Alzheimer's disease, which is a consequence of this creation being out of harmony with God's design and and the mutations that have entered and so forth and so on, aren't you glad that they don't live for thousands of years in that state? Yeah, it's an act of mercy and grace. Because then when you see them again, those people, they will be, you know, this mortal puts on immortality. This corruption puts on incorruption. You will see them in a state of of perfection. Yes. So just for clarification, does God euthanize the wicked at the end? Not in my view. I think in my view, it depends on how you understand it. Does God take an action to reveal himself unveiled in his full glory? Yes, he does. And if you read, if you, if you value Scripture and Great Controversy both, the, Christ is high and risen up in his, in his glory. The fire of Christ's presence flows down into the city, out through the gates, over the earth. Demonstrating a couple things. One, the righteous are in the city. And this fire that flows out through the city flows over the righteous, just as it says in Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days took a seat and rivers of fire come out from form and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands stand in this fire. This is a description of that same type of process. And no harm comes to the righteous. There's nothing harmful in the fire. God takes an action, though, to stop veiling himself, to reveal, to, if you want to put it this way, put the universe back the way it's supposed to be. 
This earth that we live in right now, it's an artificial bubble of reality sustained by God's grace where we exist outside of the full unveiled glory of God. Okay, But he's going to take that bubble of reality and put the universe back into its original design and he will unveil himself and the righteous will love and live there. There's no harm in this fire. But what happens to sin in that fire? Rebelliousness, lies, distortions, and evil thinking. What happens when a person who is corrupted in their character comes face to face with themselves, their own wickedness, their own unhealed hearts, the own pain and suffering they've caused, and they, and they can't deny, they can't distort, they can't blame, they can't put it off. They, they have to own it. It's on them. What's that going to be like for those people? Hell. That's hell. It's not an infliction by God. It is a result of unremedied sin in their own lives. But it's what happens when, when unveiled love and truth is finally uh, uh, revealed in its fullness. Their lies and distortions can't stand anymore. And it causes terror. So is God active in that role? Yes. But is he inflicting? No. And it will be revealed that that pain and suffering comes as a result of their choices in refusing to be reconciled. And their consequential death, I, I believe, is exactly as it says. It's voluntary. They, the Revelation text, they beg for the mountains to fall on them. They surrender their lives back. They don't want their lives. Yes, Russell? Uh, One of our listeners commented that the tree of life will be in the New Jerusalem at at the time of the return where all the sinners that are still alive before the second death will refuse to go. That's right. And if you remember the description, the New Jerusalem's on earth, the gates of New Jerusalem are open, a period of time goes by where they're building implements of war, they're not kept out other than by their own choices. And I think we've seen examples of that just recently, like the guy who mm-hmm. kept the three girls captive for all of those years in his house. Even when he was exposed and taken to jail, he chose to end his own life. And you see that happen when people often are confronted with their horrible deeds. And their deeds Judas. are horrible, they can't escape. Judas, we think we can escape from our horrible deeds, but someday we won't be able to escape from the truth of who we, who we are if we aren't healed. And I think we'll do the same thing as these other people. The next paragraph in the lesson states, even after everything he warned about came to pass, the people still clung to their sins and paganism and rebellion, openly defying the prophet to his face and scorning the word of the Lord to them. Is this happening in Christianity today? Are we doing the same thing? Clinging to sins and paganism and rebellion? Yes. How? What is the essence of paganism? Broadly speaking, of course, any God but the true God. That's, 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 of course. But what's the bottom line that all false gods have in common? You're denying the true nature of God. Okay, denying the true nature of God. Which, if you notice in Scripture, the, the Scripture constantly comes back when, when God is, is trying to help the people contrast the true God from the false gods, they always point to one attribute of God over and over again. Remember what it is? This is the Creator God. The creator God. Over and over again, he's the one who made. These things can't make anything. They can't create things. Remember, over and over again, you see it. New Testament, Old Testament. They, why do you think this is? It's not, a, not because, my view, because he's powerful. I'm not saying he's powerful. He's powerful. He's more powerful. That's what's often taught in the penal view. They'll say, see, he's powerful. He's the powerful God. No. How does nature work? What kind of laws do you have to have to construct space, time, matter, energy? How do those, how do, how do created things operate? Design. Design laws that are, that are immutable, that never change. 
And so he's saying, recognize the, the true God, he's the one who, not, who built reality. His laws function as constants that never change. Every pagan system follows an imposed law construct. It's a system of rules that are arbitrary, that really have much, very little sense to them. And the God, therefore, of those systems is an, an imperialistic God who coerces and you must appease, as you said. But it roots in this idea that you don't understand God's law, nor his creation, nor how he's designed things. And that's what God is calling us back to. That's why the Sabbath commandment, uh, worship him who made the heavens, come back, or the, the third angel's message, we're called back to worship at the end of time, him who made the heavens and the earth, and so forth. It's all handsome. Yes? Would it be correct to say that the real thing that separates the God that we serve from all other religions and gods would be His love. That's why He chose to reveal it in Christ. I had someone uh, this week compare the, uh, the violence and the, uh, the extreme Muslim extremists killing people because they didn't agree with them. And, and, and I drew a conclusion. They had, we didn't even start there. We started over here. How could God, can't reconcile how God killed all these people in the Old Testament, is what they said. I'm really glad you brought this up. And, and I brought up the fact that, you know, they had made their choices and God was, in an essence, mercifully allowing them to pass on. And he said, yeah, that's just exactly what the Muslims say. So, so, it's your choice. And you don't agree with me, so I'm going to kill you. And I, so I think the thing that differentiates is our God is a God of love that came to reveal His character on the cross. How many think what Brian is saying is different than what I said? How many think what Brian is saying is different than what I said? Do you hear them exactly the same? Are they the same or are they different? Remember what I just said a moment ago? The core essence, we focused on His creatorship and His law and His design protocols. Now He's saying it's His character of love. Are they different? They're exactly just a different way to say the same thing. But God is love, and when He created, He built His universe to operate in protocols of beneficence or giving. You know, every breath you take, you weigh carbon dioxide, plants give oxygen. In other words, the whole protocols of, of, of reality are expressions of love. So I, I, you're exactly right. It is this character of love, rightly understood. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that God's divine nature is seen in what He has made, creation, His laws of reality, so that men are without excuse. We see this working in reality. So you're right, love, and we need to show people how reality only works when you're in harmony with God's character of love. When you deviate from that, it's destructive to you. Yeah, so I love that. Thank you. Now, what happens to today, we're still to us, when we go out and try to present this truth about God's character of love, what is often what happens to us when we try to share this good news about God? We get ridiculed, rejected, and people cling to their pagan God concepts. They don't like it. It's often what happens. Isn't it true? Look through history. Sunday's lesson. The last paragraph says, As the chapter continues, we can see this remnant now faced a new threat. Fear of the Babylonians, who perhaps, not only uh, not knowing the details of what happened, would seek revenge for the death of Gedaliah and the Babylonian soldiers. Was Babylon the primary threat facing Israel. The lesson's focus, they, they have this threat. Babylon's coming. This is the threat. Was Babylon the primary threat facing Israel? No. No. What was the primary threat facing Israel? Yes. And, and the apostasy meaning the way they view and, view and understand God. This is the primary threat facing Israel. And who was the, the ones leading in that apostasy? It was the religious leaders of Israel. What is the primary threat facing Christianity today? 
is that, as we are often told, if you watch the media, atheism, Islam, pluralism, and the liberal media. Is, is this what the primary threat facing Christianity today? No. No, it's not. What is the primary threat facing Christianity today? The misrepresentation we present. Why do you think those in society who are vocal about turning away from the Christian God and rejecting the Christian God, what do you think it is that they cite as the reason? Do you think those people are turning away from a God who is gracious and kind and selfless? Are they, are they opposed to genuine love, kindness, altruism, gentleness, a willingness to help others, respect for freedom, truthfulness, and honesty? We hate those things. That's what we're opposed to. Is that what they're doing? No. To our, our interpretation of the historical account of God's action with his people. She says that the distorted representation of God and how God deals with people. I would say exactly that this view of Christianity that has dominated the church and the world for more than a thousand years now. The view that God is dictator-like, um, that his human agents must coerce and pressure uh, he has tribunals, that he's, he has angels keeping track of everything you've done. There'll be a tribunal, you have to stand before the judge, you better have the right advocate, get the right payments made. If you don't, he's, he's required by justice to torture you, some, either for eternity or before he kills you. They op- oppose coercive Christianity. That's what they oppose, coercive Christianity. Burning people and coercive Christians. Yes. This is uh, George Carlin. Religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day, and the invisible man has a special list of ten things he doesn't want you to do, and if you do any of these ten things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever until the end of time, but he loves you. (laughs) I'm giving you the view of Christianity people are rejecting. This is... um, Richard Dawkins. Two brief quotes from Dawkins. First one. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, uh, ethnic cleanser, misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, uh, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully. You see, you're getting a reason? This is the picture. When you present this picture of God, as, as many of our leading thinkers do in our books and our publications, they present this God who is just in doing this. And then Richard Dawkins' other short one-sentence statement, I am against religion because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world. Turn your brain off. Don't think. The greatest threat to Christianity is the false version of Christianity based on the idea that God's laws function no different than our own, that he's an arbitrary dictator, and we aren't allowed to ask questions because he's got power, and if we do, he's going to punish. All right, this week I got an email from a theologian with a master's degree, almost got his PhD, who has uh, been working as a pastor in the church for decades. And he emailed me this week asking if I believe that God punishes I presented the position that we espouse in this class with both Bible uh, references and quotations from one of the founders of our church, and he absolutely could not agree, and I don't even think could comprehend. He insisted over and over again that God is angry and is wrathful and does inflict punishment. He will torture and kill the wicked. His last email to me, which I found diagnostic in these few sentences, and I want to read these few sentences to you. 
Again, I see both active and passive punishment here. I am comfortable with that. He is God. He can do anything he wants to do. I cannot question his actions. Satan wants me to, but I won't go there. Master's degree, close to PhD, leading leader in our church, been pastoring for more than four decades or three decades. What were you about to say? How can one desire to live with that kind of God for eternity? How do you know that he will turn on you at some point during the long? So did you see did you see some diagnostic problems in the way the mind works here? And the perspectives and the philosophical view. This God he describes is an is the source of inflicted punishments. Number one, it's co- so it's coercion. He's also arbitrary. This guy can do anything he wants. Anything. Do, does the God we serve, does he do anything he wants? Yes. If you understand he only wants to do things that are in love. Okay, yes. So, but when I, when I put the question back to him, so are you saying God wants to coerce people? That God wants to actually threaten people? That God wants to use his power to torture and inflict pain? That God wants to, because that's how he's described God doing all this, so he must want to do it. Now, if you understand the, the idea that he wants, that's, that's true. But there are there some things God can't do. And out of truth, and out of harmony with the way he designed the universe. Yes, he doesn't act out of harmony with his own nature. Then he wouldn't be God anymore. He can't force another person's will can't coerce someone to love him. God cannot, with all of his power, get genuine love by the exercise of coercive power. Can't get it. Not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. Zechariah. So, so this guy, this, what we heard, he's is a, is a source of inflicted punishment. He's arbitrary. We are, we are not allowed to ask questions or think with this God. Did you hear that? His statement was, um, he can do anything he wants to do. I cannot question his actions. Satan wants me to, but I won't go there. And finally, the idea that if you ask legitimate questions is satanic. Asking legitimate questions is satanic. I mean, this is the essence of Satan's deceptive theology right in the core of our church. And I responded back to him. I said, well, I'm glad you weren't Abraham or Moses. who both questioned God and argued with him, and they were the only two in the Old Testament God called his friends. This neatly sums up the trap much of Christian leadership finds itself in today, the same exact trap. They call it the sovereignty of God. And let's be clear, I believe God is sovereign. But he is sovereign through his designs. And his designs are the designs of love and freedom and truth. They use sovereignty through the lens of a human dictator. He's got power. He says, do it. You better or else I'll punish you. This is not sovereignty. Monday's lesson, second paragraph. It says, uh, they also vowed they would do whatever God asked or commanded them to do. So as we read, we see people who seem to have learned their lesson, who want not only to know what God, God's will is, but more important, to follow it. The words, and this is from Scripture, Jeremiah 42, 6, whether it is pleasing or displeasing, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we send you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. We're were a powerful confession of faith. After all that had happened, it was about time. Was this a confession of faith? 
This is no different than when the devil said, we know who you are, you son, thou son of God, thou son of the most high God, or the devils believe and tremble. When the devils confronted Christ, we know who you are, thou son of the most high God, is this a confession of faith? No, this isn't a confession of faith. What was this? What was happening here? These were sinners in trouble for their wicked ways. And what are they trying to do but take a legal action? We will confess our wrongs and get legal pardon for our misdeeds. We want to be right with the power, the ruling authority. I, I like the comparison of the devil. Because the devil, one can argue the devils really didn't know God because their, their, their confession was, have you come to torment us before our time? They weren't in a, They were no longer in a relationship with God. They didn't. They had believed the lies about His character, and you know the same thing with the, the uh, Judeans. No, I agree. So the fourth and fifth paragraphs it says, God has to warn them because He knows the tendency of their hearts. He knows that they are uh, that they are thinking of going back to Egypt. Think of the symbolism here. In order to seek protection, they wanted. So the Lord gave them very clear and specific commands not to do that, that such a course would bring ruin upon them. Again, such a stark choice, the choice we have all, we all have to face. Life and peace through faith and obedience to Jesus, or misery and death through lack of faith and lack of obedience. No matter the diff- different circumstances, in the end, the issue is the same for us all. Unlike these people, we don't have we, we don't always have the warnings given to us so specifically and so clearly expressed, but we have been given the warnings just the same. Does that sound like a people who just made a confession of faith in the Lord? That they're now wanting to go back to Egypt? No, this wasn't a confession of faith. Not at all. This reminded me, when I, when I read this, I remember a story that Ellen White wrote of her personal experience found in First Testimonies, uh, page 80. A couple paragraphs. It says, A few weeks after this, on our way to Boston, we took the steamer at Portland. A violent storm came up, and we were in great peril. The boat rolled fearfully, and the waves dashed into the cabin windows. There was a great fear in the ladies' cabin. Men were confessing their sins and crying to God for mercy. Some were calling upon the Virgin Mary to keep them, while others were making solemn vows to God that if they reached land, they would devote their lives to his service. It was a scene of terror and confusion. As the boat rocked, a lady turned to me and said, Are you not terrified? I suppose it's a fact that we will never reach land. I told her that I had made Christ my refuge, and if my work was done, I might as well lie at the bottom of the ocean as anywhere, any other place. But if my work was not done, all the waters of the ocean could not drown me. My trust was in God. He could, he would bring us safe to land, uh, if it was for his glory. Through the mercy of God, we all landed safe. But some of the passengers who manifest such fear in the storm made no reference to it, only to make light of their fears. One who had solemnly promised that if she were preserved to see land, she would be a Christian, mockingly cry, cried out that she, as she left the boat, Glory to God, I am glad to step on land again. I asked her to go back a few hours and remember her vows to God. She turned from me with a sneer. I was forcibly reminded of deathbed repentance. Some serve themselves and Satan all their lives, and then as sickness subdues them and a fearful uncertainty has presented them, they manifest some sorrow for sin and perhaps say they are willing to die, and their friends make themselves believe that they have been truly converted and fitted for heaven. But if these should recover, they would be as rebellious as ever. Why did I share this with you today? What, what, what was the point of this? What were we just talking about? This idea of a confession of faith. See, when you have a penal model 
What's the issue in the penal law? You've done wrong and you must confess your wrongs. Still coercion. No change. And love can't be, can't be forced. And so if someone does come in here and says, love me or I'll kill you, you can say it, but as soon as they're gone, there's no love in your heart and there never was. And how much of Christianity has people believing this? We're sinners. We're under the condemnation of eternal death. We are guilty before God. You must confess your sin and claim the blood payment for your sin. Or confess your sin and do the proper penance. Or some other way. It's about confession and some legal action, whether it's legal action Christ takes on your behalf in heaven or it's legal action that you do here on earth. It's confess and legal action. Confess and legal action. That is not the plan of salvation. It's a fraud. The Christian world is infected with this. That's why Christians are powerless to overcome in their life and their rates of, of uh, child molestation, spouse abuse, addiction, porn use, and, and so forth. They're no different in Christian homes across the land than non-Christian homes. In fact, America, 75 to 80% of the, of the population Christian has the highest teen pregnancy rate of any Western country in the world. Ten times the teen pregnancy rate than Japan, which has less than 1% of the population Christian. Twice that of Great Britain, which half the population is Christian. Um, Four times the rate of France and Germany, which about half the population is Christian. So, there's something wrong. And what's wrong is, we've we've been diagnosed wrong. We think our problem is legal. And thus, we've bought into a false solution. And I can tell you, in medicine, if you diagnose somebody wrong and you give them the wrong treatment, they don't get well. And sometimes you kill them. And sometimes you kill them they get worse. And that's what's happened in Christianity. People are walking around feeling this false security and false safety. My sins have been paid. They've gone beforehand into judgment. Uh, the blood of Jesus has been applied. I'm covered in the right of righteousness. And it's all this kind of legal stuff going on, but they haven't actually participated. As Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, they haven't internalized into their character Jesus Christ. Or as he said to Nicodemus, except a man be legally pardoned. He cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. No, except a man be born again. It's a transformational, regenerational process that we actually, and it only happens when we come back to a trust relation with Jesus Christ. Yes, back in the corner. I'm sitting here listening to this, and it seems to me that Christianity spread so fast in the first century was because it contrasted with the imperial view of Rome. Yes, and it kept spreading until when? Until Rome co-opted it. Constantine converted. And then what happened was Rome then started persecuting those that didn't agree with Rome. And, and, and the Christian church became infected with the idea that God runs his universe like Constantine runs Rome. That God's laws are a system of rules and he's the ultimate authority and judge. And this whole penal construct came in when Constantine converted. And that's when we went into that's when the, the dark ages, an age of darkness. That's when the church could only grow by convert or die. Yes. And the world became dark. Darkness covers the earth, grows darkness to the people. The last paragraph says that those people had a stark choice. What if today, do we have a stark choice? How would you describe that stark choice to someone today? What is our choice today? At Mount Carmel, remember? If God is like Baal, worship him. If God is like Yahweh, worship him. I mean, who do we, what is the, the message today? Well, as you think that through, let's, uh, Tuesdays ask us to read Jeremiah 42 and 43. So if you want to pull out your, your Bible, we're going to just read Jeremiah 42 and 43. And notice what the process here is. And think how different our church might be if we were the people standing there back then. Then all, then all the army officers, including Johanan, son of Korea, 
and Jezaniah, son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest approached Jeremiah the prophet and said to him, please hear our petition and prayer, pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. First off, if you just think about it, why aren't they praying to the Lord their God? What is their construct of God that they have to have someone go pray to him for them? Yeah, their whole, their whole basis of understanding theology and God and everything is still so corrupt. And pray to him, please, then pray to, uh, pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. Pray that the Lord your God, not the Lord our God, <laughs> the Lord your God, will tell us where we should go and what we should do. I have heard you, replied Jeremiah the prophet. I will certainly pray to the Lord, and notice his words, the Lord your God, <laughs> As you have requested, I will tell you everything the Lord says and will keep nothing back from you. Then they said this to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with everything the Lord your God sends you to tell us. Whether it is favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord our God. Now it's our God, so that's good. To whom uh, we are sending you so that it will go well with us for we will obey the Lord our God. Ten days later, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So he called together Johanan son of Kariah and asked the army officers who were with him and all the people from the least to the greatest. Uh, he said to them all, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition says, if you stay in this land, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you for I am grieved over the disaster I have inflicted on you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hand. I will show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your land. However, if you say, we will not stay in this land, and so disobey the Lord your God, and if you say, no, we will go and live in Egypt where we will not see war and hear the trumpet or, or be hungry for bread, then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. If you are determined to go to Egypt and you are to go, and you do go to settle there, then the sword you fear will overtake you there, and the famine you dread will follow you into Egypt, and there you will die. Indeed, all who are determined to go to Egypt to settle there will die by the sword, famine, and plague. Not one of them will survive or escape the disaster I will bring on them. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. As my anger and wrath have been poured out on those who live in Jerusalem, so will my wrath be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. You will be an object of cursing and horror, of condemnation and reproach. You will never see this place again. O remnant of Judah, the Lord has told you, do not go to Egypt. Be sure... Of this, I warn you today that you may be you made a fatal mistake when you sent me to the Lord your God and said, "Pray to the Lord for our God for us. Tell us everything He says, and we will do it." I have told you today, but you still have not obeyed the Lord your God and all He sent me to tell you. So now, be sure of this: you will die by the sword, famine, and plague in the place where you want to go to settle. And that's just uh, forty-two. I don't know that I'll read forty-three. If you read it, what you will find is that they actually go. And they, they tell Jeremiah that, that uh, he's been corrupted by one of his assistants and, and they're not going to believe it and he, they're being lied to and, and they're going to Egypt anyway. What do, you, what do you hear in this? What are the major lessons of this? Let's focus on a few. First off, do we get confirmation, if you read verse, uh, chapter 43, do you get confirmation that their faith, was not, their faith was not a confession of faith? That they did not have genuine faith? 
If we look through the theater lens, what is the object lesson that applies to us? Remember, Egypt represents the sinful world that enslaves us. So with that in mind, what does it mean that God told the remnant to stay in Israel? What's he saying to us today? And if we stay in Israel, we get built up. We, 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 uh, we flourish. If we go to Egypt, we're going to... What's he saying to us? How do we apply the, the object lesson to reality? We have to be very careful of how we think. Egypt is a way of thinking. Israel is a way of thinking. A mindset. The way it's supposed to be, yes. And what is the way of Egypt's thinking? Pharaoh was an emperor and he was going to protect them. So it's, a, it's an imperial law construct. And, and the focus in Egypt is on rules and rules and protection and infinite power. And Israel was supposed to be a nation of priests, right? Yeah. Okay. And the priests are to be focusing on themselves, or the priests are supposed to be serving others. So in Egypt, we have a system of man-made imposed laws that are focused on self-protection, and in Israel, we have a system of self-sacrificial love focusing on ministry to others. So he's saying to us today, if you stay in my methods, live in harmony with my design law of love, you will be built up and you will be sustained. But if you go into the world and practice the world system of of self-protection and coercion, you will die. God, God promised them blessings. Why? Well, if you plant seed and you water it and you fertilize it and the sun shines on it, what happens? This is what he's telling. If you live in harmony with my design, this is how life is built. You will, you will be blessed. You'll get healthier. You'll get stronger. You'll grow. If you go back to the worries of the world, which are opposite my design, you, you will corrode and die. They wanted to go to Egypt. What does that represent for us today? What do we want to go to? What are we tempted to go to when times get tough? Some place where somebody else will take care of us, for one thing. Where we abdicate the responsibility for our own thinking we take over a checklist of all the things that we can check off and then we're protected. Where God wants us to be thinking, really thinking individuals. And that's hard work. Yeah. Thoughts? Other thoughts? Application of this in, in real world today? Yes. For me, it always comes back to this, this trust issue with what you just finished saying. If I trust God to, to do what he promised to do, um, I am not in control. But if I go to a, a place where I, I have authority and control over all things, I tend to feel more comfortable there because they're within my, my realm of, of control, manipulation, and so on. So can I relinquish that and, and let it go for allowing God to do His thing and wait for His... His... So did you hear what he just described? Put it in a nutshell. Am I going to protect self, survival of the fittest, watch out for number one, or am I going to die to self and surrender my life into God's hands where I trust him to watch out for me? I mean, that's really it, isn't it? Yeah, well said. Yes, over here. It reminds me a lot of when, when Jesus was here. He had lots of people that blocked him, but when their idea of what his mission really was was, was smashed against a stone, they all scattered. And there was only a few that clung close, and Jesus tried to gather those together to strengthen them again. Remember he said they came for the loaves and the fishes. They came for what they could get out of it. Okay? Um, temporally, what they, how they could get ahead, get self ahead. When, it, when he actually then confronted them about the, unless you'd, you know, eat my flesh, drink my blood, the self-sacrificial stuff, where they had to actually become givers to others, they'd be like, whoa, hold on here. 
That's not how it works. You're supposed to use your power, throw out the Romans, make us the greatest, and everybody else serves us. Rather than us, become the greatest servants to the world. What does it mean that they will die by sword, famine, and plague? They will die by violence from others, spiritual starvation as they no longer ingest truth, metaphorically speaking. I don't think it was just physical starvation. I think spiritual starvation is trying to... We see people die all the time as they reject truth. You see them dying. And they die of pestilence. I think it's metaphor, Bible symbol, for the infection of selfishness that plagues the sinful soul and corrupts and over the... I mean, that's what they die from. Selfishness. Have you seen people that are so selfish that they, they, they actually destroy themselves? They, 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 they can't trust anybody. They can't connect with anybody. They see threats everywhere. Every, everything is, is suspicious. Yeah. What does it mean God's anger and wrath will be poured out? He'll let them go. And then we have that confirmed many places in Scripture. That what is the angriest act love can take to let go to let go the object of your love and God lets them go and when, when, the, when the creator of life the source of life lets go what happens they die yes so why does God speak though in such apparently you know totalitarian language and voice and attitude that I will do this to you and I will punish and you will really and I will bring this upon you why does he talk this way to them if he had spoken in the still small voice, they would have gone, well, we can't trust him. He's only got this soft little weak voice. Yeah, he's mousy. When all these other gods speak so loudly. Yes. So where are they functioning? Level, level one. Level one moral decision making. The God has its right is whether you get rewarded, wrong is whether you get punished. And a God establishes his right to rule at level one thinking people with power. We want the powerful God because he can give the greatest rewards and he can protect us from the other, other enemies out there. And so he speaks in this way because he's speaking to immature spiritual children that can't comprehend anything more than that. But he still loves them, so he speaks a language they can understand. It would be no different than if he came to speak to us today. I'm pretty sure if he wanted to speak to us today, he'd speak English, not Hebrew. If he came here and started speaking Hebrew, it really wouldn't help us, would it? No. He speaks a language that people can understand. What does it mean that God sent the message to them, this message to them through Jeremiah? Why, why did he do this? What's, what's the sim- symbolism here as we understand the application to our lives? That God never stops pouring out truth. Even though God foreknew that they were going to reject it, God is still always, it's like the sun keeps shining, the sun keeps shining, the truth keeps coming out, the truth keeps being poured forward. God has his agents taking the message, even though people are going to reject it, not like it, hate it, maybe even persecute those who send it, he still keeps as what true to himself, which is the source of truth. And he keeps pouring it out. And again, they, didn't, they were afraid to speak directly from God. He spoke through the one avenue that they would listen to, which yes. was Jeremiah. Yes, yes, good. Well, well said. And, and what do we learn from the response of the people? That truth, we learned something very powerful. It's kind of what I read from that story of Ellen White. Truth has no power on those who have hardened their mind against it. You can harden your mind against it, and you, you want what you want. And if what you want, if, if the truth goes against what you want, you reject the truth, because you've already decided what you want. 
So what was their reason for asking Jeremiah to pray and get an answer? Were they hoping to get their own decision endorsed? Yeah, what do you think? That, um, that people who are in fear and view that, they, that there's a potential power source they can tap into to get their agenda met, uh, may, maybe they seek it, right? I mean, they were going to Jeremiah to go to God, to get God. To, how many Christians pray to God and he's a big vending machine? If you give me this, I will do so many penances. You give me this, I will go and volunteer. If you, then in other words, it's a, it's, a, it's a vending machine that you put in your number of prayers and the number of ties and things, and then you get out the things you want. Number of prayers and number of promises. A number of promises, yes. I've, cla- I've, claimed my, I've claimed the promises from the Bible. And so I think they were going to him because they knew, they believed he existed. But they didn't know him in his character, but they, they thought him as powerful. Or do you think it means that God sent... His, if you read 43, he says, I'll send my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, to destroy. What do you think Nebuchadnezzar is called his servant? What do you think about that? How does that work out? Was, was Nebuchadnezzar a puppet? He was a robotic. Uh, God was pre-programming him. Uh, did, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had free will. I mean, what, what was going on here? In the verse 42, he said, you don't need to be afraid of, of the king of Babylon. That he will, he will, if you stay here in the land, he will build you up and he'll support you. He'll have compassion on you. Verse 43, I'm going to send my, if you go to Egypt, I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to destroy you. Initially, Nebuchadnezzar exercised his free will. And God foreknew what Nebuchadnezzar's free will would be before his conversion. But eventually... What do human and pagan systems and people want to do? Look in American business. What does an American, let's just say, worldly, non-godly businessman want to do with his business? What does he want to do? Expand. Expand. And, and when he sees competition in the, in the marketplace, what does he want to do with the competition in the marketplace? Help, help the competition? Crush the competition. Right? This is the worldly way. So they want to get more and more and more and more and more and more of the market share, more and more and more power for self. This is the worldly way. So is it predictable what Nebuchadnezzar will do if something doesn't reach? If the SEC isn't there, if the, if the Trade Commission isn't there saying this, this monopoly can't form, okay, then what will these, these big companies do? If there's some not restraining power, what happens? Okay, so God tells them, um, basically, you decide to walk away. I'm going to set you free. And can we predict what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do at that point? He's going to come. He's going to dominate. He's going to take over. He's going to destroy. And then we see this happening. Yes. I think it's the fact that it, to Nebuchadnezzar, it appeared that, it, uh, that Judah was going to have a treaty with Pharaoh, which means they were going to merge with Pharaoh instead of staying there independent and small. Had they stayed there independent and small and followed God's ways, Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have done anything. But now that they're going to rely on Pharaoh, he's got to crush them. So you see in business, one, one, one giant company, and they see two small ones maybe about to merge that could then could threaten their, their market share. What do they want to do then, right? <laughs> they want to stop that merger, don't they? Okay, this... exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was going to do because it was the natural order of things in his belief set. Exactly. So, yeah, so God is predicting this because this is what selfishness does. Yeah. Last paragraph. It says, human nature is human nature, always looking for some, someone else to blame for its problems, always looking for an excuse to do what it wants. Thus, for whatever reason, Barak uh, was accused of wanting all of his countrymen to die by the hand of the Babylonians or to be taken into exile there. Jeremiah 43 does not say why the people thought Barak 
um, wanted this to happen any more than the scriptures explains why the children of Israel uh, thought Moses wanted them to die in the wilderness. People in thrall of emotions and passions may not have sound reasons for their thinking. How crucial it is then that we keep our passions and emotions submitted to the Lord in the bottom pink. How often do we allow emotions and passions to cloud our judgment or even override a clear, thus saith the Lord? Any thoughts about that? I don't know, but you, when did you last hear the last the words, thus saith the Lord? Exactly. And I was about to say, that thus saith the Lord can be another form of self-deceit. They're talking about your emotions deceiving you and tricking you. And, you know, the human heart is deceitful above all things, utterly wicked, who can know it, Jeremiah. Um, he's talking about this very thing going on. But a clear, thus saith the Lord, I see it used for self-deception all the time. And it's a form of self-deception to avoid truth. Refusing to think, refusing to evaluate the meaning of things, taking passages at face value. My Bible says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Just like that, that the, the email I got from the pastor that I read earlier. God said it, and I, got, I didn't read them all to you, but I got multiple ones from him that say things like, he'd quote a Bible verse, and, and, or an Ellen White quote, and he said, um, Jeremiah or Isaiah quote, says this, and Ellen White says this, um, they said it, I believe them, I don't believe your human reasoning. This declarative type of thinking, just statements. And so many people think this way. You have to go past it. This is the type of thinking, and I love this little kind of a joke. <clears throat> I got a frog in my throat. Dr. Jennings is eating amphibians. <laughs> this is the type of thing. Well, I said it. He, he said it. I got him on tape saying he had a frog in his throat. Okay? And this is what happens when they read Scripture. God said it. Who are you to interpret it? Well, I'm a person who's taken Jesus as his invitation in Scripture. Come, let us reason together. Your sins are like scarlet, white like snow. Jesus said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants. Rather, I call you friends, because servants don't understand their master's business. I mean, we've been invited to be like Moses, to be like Abraham, to actually question in a heart that's searching for true knowledge and wisdom and truth, to really understand the answers. God invites us to question him. And it's appropriate to question him with a heart that really wants answers. God will give answers if you're sincere in seeking those answers. And God says in, through James, if you lack wisdom, ask. He's not, he's not selfish and restrictive in giving that wisdom. The reason we don't get more wisdom is we often don't ask and don't seek it. We've got our little box, our little, thus saith the Lord, systems of rules. Well, we, we, we already know it all. There's nothing more for us to ask for. Don't, don't, don't confuse me with a new idea now. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are a God of patience and love and truth. And yes, Lord, many of our ideas have been infected and corrupted with distortions from this world. But you've overcome the world. And you've got resources that are infinite that can help us out of this. And so we look to you now and ask for wisdom, for truth, for insight, for enlightenment. Help us make that distinction between your ways and the ways of this world. And then help us experience the application of your ways into our hearts and minds. And then enable us to be effective in demonstrating the way we live and communicating and the way we communicate to others who, who seem to be passionate for God. But maybe they're not um, taking a message that actually represents you at this time. Help us, help us reach some of those folks, Lord, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.